Good afternoon. I hope that uh, wherever you're tuning in from today, that it's a lovely day. It certainly is a nice uh, fall day here in Bloomington, Indiana, where I'm coming to you with uh, another edition of the uh, Canons of Mass Construction podcast. Last time we looked at the uh, meets and bounds of Aboriginal title, looking at its origins, some of the limits that have arisen uh, in efforts to reestablish Aboriginal title. Um, we've looked at the problem of extinguishment and when and how the federal government can um, engage in the process of extinguishing Aboriginal title. And we finally looked at uh, whether or not those takings can be compensable, whether or not uh, indigenous peoples in the United States, native nations are owed uh, money uh, once their lands have been have been taken by the government. Today we're going to build on those key principles that we looked at last time and add to them. Uh, the first case we'll look at is U.S. v. Shoshone Tribe of Indians, case out of 1938. That deals with the content of recognized title. So if you've got Indian title, what is the, what does it actually mean? What do you what do you get if you're a Native nation? Uh, what what benefits does it have? From there, we'll move to some of the parameters of uh, recognized title, looking at U.S. v. Sioux Nation of Indians out of uh, 1980, a very interesting case. Um, considering, you know, in, in general, the, the Black Hills, but also, um, you know, what, uh, what type of compensation was due then? And if we think about recognized title, um, what what sort of mandate does that give the government to uh, to make some sort of uh, compensation or or set to rights um, some of these problematic takings from the past? And then we move ever so slightly, looking at, at a different type of land base, but looking at reservations that are created by executive order. And here we have the the Sioux Tribe of Indians v. U.S. out of 1942, but. That case makes us question when you have federal set-aside lands and those are taken back by the federal government, uh, does the tribe, does the native nation get uh, any kind of compensation for that taking? Yeah, I think what we've seen in, in the past, at least, looking at some of these compensation cases, there's a bit of a stinginess on the part of Uncle Sam to actually make uh, good and make right on a number of these uh, different land takings from tribes. but. You know, we'll look at the court's reasoning and, and the ultimate outcome. And finally, we shift gears even more looking at submerged lands and the question of whether Indians in, in ownership of lands or ownership of um, reservations and, and territories, do they actually own the lands beneath the bodies of water? So land beneath the river, land beneath a, a lake, um, within the uh, exterior boundaries of a reservation. So very interesting questions. And again, this isn't something that comes up regularly in constitutional law. It's not something that you necessarily see in, in property disputes on the regular. And yet in Indian law, these are cases that tend to come up over and over again, looking at these same sorts of questions. Um, and it's particular. The analysis that gets done ultimately hinges upon the particular terms of particular treaties that were set out to establish very particular reservations. 
So what we've got in the end is sort of a, a morass of cases to kind of walk through, but um, really the outcomes vary depending upon what's actually written and set uh, in the treaties. And so with that, let's start with our first case to look at um, U.S. v. Shoshone Tribe of Indians out of 1938. As with all of our analyses that we walk through in, in the cases, we got to start with the treaty. And in U.S. v. Shoshone, we start with a treaty dating back to 1863. Key facts are the Shoshone get a 44.6 million acre reservation, so a huge chunk of land. Five years later, and this is so common among these sort of reservation diminishment cases, but 1868, five years later, the tribe decides they're going to cede part of their reservation. Uh, the United States, um, the district uh, court, they note that the reservation is going to be uh, 3.05 million acres. Uh, as a result of the session, and the language of the of the treaty says, it shall be and the same is set apart for the absolute and undisturbed use and occupation of the Shoshone Indians. This area of land it's known to contain valuable mineral deposits. So already in in creating the reservation, there's this knowledge that it it could be a pretty valuable chunk of land, even though it, it's significantly reduced after only five years. Fast forward to 1904, uh, both the Shoshone and the United States government, they come to terms on yet another uh, session of land. So the tribe agrees to cede 1.4 million acres, so a million and a half acres, uh, to the United States government uh, for sale. And the net proceeds of the sale would be given uh, back to the Indians, back to the tribe. The lower court determines that the value of the lands uh, here in this case uh, and included mineral and timber resources, all that factored into the cost. And so above all, the court you know, held that the tribe has a right of occupancy, Indian title. Uh, but that Indian title also included minerals and timber uh, as, as, a part of, as a part of the taking. So... Again, shift, shifting perspective, <laughs> what we what we implement in the U.S. to resolve a lot of these uh, disparate land claims is the the court of Indian court court of Indian claims, and here that's the that's the court that's adjudicating these these land claims. In particular, um, we're looking at whether that court of claims has made a mistake, whether they've erred. In holding that the right of the right of the tribe in its Indian title includes mineral and timber resources, and this is this is a huge deal, not just for the sake of mineral and timber, but for the potential uh, for economic development. I mean, we're talking about a remote uh, area, and you know, any any resource, any any benefit or advantage that the tribe can assert. It, it's naturally going to want to do that, and so what we're looking at is whether the whether the treaty, whether through that treaty, the tribe also acquired beneficial ownership of minerals and of the timber timber on their reservation. And the court uh, 
takes this case in an unexpected direction, but it says we're, we're going to apply the canons of construction. You know, hence, you know, one, one part of the origins of this podcast. But um, the Indian canons of construction are that, you know, we, we ready the phrase absolute and undisturbed use and population with other parts of the document. And what we have to do when we're applying the Indian canons of construction is interpret the treaty in the way that the Indians would have understood it. And if we if we don't interpret the treaty that way, then it's not a genuine application of the canons of construction, and, and thus the, uh, the uh, analysis of the treaty can, can be uh, suspect. So the court tells us that that policy of dealing fairly with the Indians is to assume that the United States government is not seeking any advantage for itself, which any uh, indigenous person would find a bit laughable and fair enough. Uh, but that's one of the that's one of the guideposts of the canons of construction. Moreover, we assume that Indians are are their likely acceptance without scrutiny of the terms um, could could have resulted given a language barrier. So that's another reason why we interpret the treaty in a way that the Indians would have understood it. And as a result, we try not to interpret treaties too narrowly. We try to construe them in the sense that the Indians naturally would have understood them. So all of these things go in and make up the canons of construction um, themselves or itself. And the interpretation of the, of the treaty in this case has to abide by these uh, various precepts. Um, while the United States has always had legal title to Indian lands and power to control, we established that way back in um, uh, Johnson v. McIntosh. Um, it did not have the power to give to others or to appropriate for its own use any part of Indian land without rendering just compensation. So that's the, that's the ball game. That's the field that we're playing on in resolving this case. And the way that breaks down and it's applied here in Shoshone is we look at the treaty purpose. And one, we can automatically tick off that it was a permanent homeland. It was supposed to be a permanent homeland for the Shoshone. And that possession of the lands, the minerals constitute elements of the land itself. If you, if you go digging for gold, you're looking at it within the land. So in that sense, it makes it, it's very practical to assume that those are constituent elements of the land itself. The court also observes that for practical purposes, the tribe owned the land. Um, so fee-only transfers uh, that have no beneficial interest, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. What we're, what we're thinking about is the land in its totality. So we've got to consider possession of the lands to include possession of the minerals, which are a constituent element. And we're assuming practical ownership. And moreover, the government itself knew the value of the land. It understood in setting those lands aside for the Shoshone that, that they were lands of, of potential value. Um, all of these things in the court's eyes add up to a purpose of creating a homeland that suggests beneficial practical ownership. And we're going to construe, the court is going to construe those transactions that occurred uh, as being favorable to the, to the ward. And again, that harkens back to the guardian uh, ward relationship that we 
uh, talked about many days ago in the course, but what that suggests for those that are just tuning in is that um, <laughs> the the trust dynamic between Indians and the federal government has been described by the Supreme Court of the United States as being that between a ward and guardian. So the, the guardian in this case is the government of the United States, and the ward would be the Shoshone Indians. All of these add up to kind of an overwhelming conclusion for the court that while the United States retained fee to the reservation lands, the tribe's right of occupancy was incapable of being sold um, or being held by others, and that that right to those lands is as sacred and as uh, securely safeguarded as would be lands held in fee simple absolute. So that's that's the conclusion. Um, you know, the question was, you know, did the court of claims err in holding that the right of the tribe included timber and mineral resources within the reservation? The answer to that is no. Um, it it would necessarily have have included that. And the court concludes on the issue of whether the treaty gave the tribe beneficial ownership of the minerals and timbers that we just discussed. The answer to that is yes. And so this case comes out as, as a major win for the tribes, again, kind of setting the framework for what recognized title includes. And of necessity, the court seems to suggest it has to include minerals and it has to include um, the, the timber rights. Those are constituent elements of the land itself. The government knew the value of the land when it created this homeland. The purpose was, in fact, to create a homeland, and that suggests beneficial ownership. So major, major win for tribes, um, in this case coming out of 1938. The next case that comes up is uh, U.S. v. Sioux Nation of Indians coming uh, before the Supreme Court in 1980. And here, written by Justice Blackman, it starts off with a bit of you know old-fashioned Western romanticism, but uh, Justice Blackman writes, this case concerns the Black Hills of South Dakota, the Great Sioux Reservation, and a colorful and in many respects tragic chapter in the history of the nation's West. So off, off the bat, I mean, you can kind of tell sympathies or, or interest at least in, in the material um, based upon the, the justice's treatment of it. But at any rate, what Justice Blackman undertakes immediately after is a... <laughs> fact-based uh, uh, exposition of the Treaty of 1868 and the subsequent events that, that led to uh, what amounted to an invasion of the Black Hills uh, by settlers in the United States. And so we start again with, with the treaty, looking at uh, the Treaty of 1868. We get the Great Sioux Reservation that gets created. Eventually, the government, as we'll see time and again, they shift their policy to one of allotment. And I think my students are probably tired of hearing it, but I, I called the General Allotment Act the GAW. It's kind of like, golly, look what they did next. But at any rate, we implement the General Allotment Act, and what that does is it basically divides the reservation up into a number of squares. And this was general federal policy, so while it applied to the Great Sea Reservation, uh, it tended to apply to reservations across the West. And the idea was, well, we've actually given these Indians way too much land. 
and there's no surprise there given westward expansion at this point, but the goal was to, to make Indian lands available for, for non-Indian settlement. And so in, in divvying up the reservations into squares, Indians were given uh, 160 acres in general for male heads of household. They would own those lands for 25 years, free of taxes. It would be in, in a trust status. And the assumption was that after that 25-year period had ended, the lands would then be passed on to the allottees in fee simple. They would own it outright. And, of course, all the, the challenges and uh, accompanying complications of land ownership that would follow, in particular, uh, the payment of taxes to the states and to the federal government. So it, it was a very pernicious way for the United States government to acquire and accumulate more land. Any, any lands that weren't allotted to individual Indians were then considered, quote, surplus lands, lands that the Indians didn't need. And those lands could be opened up to non-Indian settlement. And you know, for students of federal Indian law, this is no surprise, but the, the result was a series of checkerboards. So if you think about a checkerboard or a chessboard, you know, there's black and white squares or black and red if you like checkers. I think it's also called drafts. But uh, anyway, you, you have, you know, say, a number of um, Indian squares, and let's call those the red squares you know, to, to be uh, eth ethnically insensitive and harken back to you know, some of our own prejudicial past. But you know, say the Indian squares are the red squares and the black squares are non-Indian squares. You can have Indian land side by side or surrounded by non-Indian allotments, or non it would be allotments, but non-Indian fee lands, or vice versa. You can have one non-Indian settlement right smack dab in the middle of a number of uh, Indian settlements. So what it what it did is it creates this this whole confusion now about jurisdiction, about not really land ownership. I mean that's in some ways been settled, but. But questions about who controls and who has authority, and anyway, back to back to Sioux Nation case. Um, what what we're seeing here is that in that initial process. So we have a reservation that gets created. We implement the General Allotment Act or the GAW in late 1800s, and then from there, you know, we have a wave of non-Indian settlement. So the the gong um, was said to have voided the old treaty. Uh, the The tribes gave up hunting rights and in and promise and promised also not to attack the settlers that were coming in. One of the stipulations of the treaty, however, was that there wouldn't be any further sessions unless three quarters of the male population of the Great Sioux Nation uh, were to agree. So that's in 1868. That's our new treaty that creates the reservation. We give, we create the reservation. Eventually, we end up divvying that up to individual Indians. It gets opened up to non-Indians, and we're, there's also some some voiding of of the original treaty rights, i.e., the rights to hunt off the reservation in the traditional homelands, and a promise not to attack settlers. And then there's the session clause that no further sessions would be valid unless you've got three-quarters of the men in the tribe that agree. So in 1864, an uh, infamous character in the United States history, General George Armstrong Custer, leads his expedition searching for gold in the Black Hills. 
And it's identified that, that the Black Hills and the Great Sioux Nation itself are obstacles to progress. And the biggest obstacle of them all is this damn treaty in 1868, the Treaty of Fort Laramie that created the reservation in the first place. So the army sends in troops, uh, 1874, uh, to, to keep prospectors out of the Indian lands. And of course, uh, General Custer, being the great and famed Indian fighter that he was, um, thought this was highly problematic and urges uh, a change in policy. So in 1875, the army reverses course, and President Grant, himself a former general, decides, "Hey, we're gonna we're just gonna abandon the treaty obligations. This is this is too much. It's impractical." Congress agrees in 1875 and, and says, "Hey, the only practical course is that we've got to allow mining." And what's interesting in this case is that the the Indian leadership, the leadership of the nation, they knew the mineral value, and their bottom dollar for Selling their lands or opening them up to mineral rights was it was a cool seventy mil. Uh, the the commission that's negotiating the the treaty comes back and says, hey, actually, you know, we'll we'll give you about four hundred thousand a year to rent the lands and open it up to prospecting, um, or we'll pay you six million outright, which is a far cry from the seventy million that the tribes uh, the tribal leadership had identified. So 1876, you've got Sioux who are now considered hostiles, and they're they're carrying on trying to hunt their own territory. In August of 1876, uh, through the congressional appropriations process, because of the Sioux hunting, um, the stipulation from Congress is, hey, we're we're not giving you any more rations unless you agreed to cede the Black Hills. And they appoint a new commissioner to make sure that that happens. So the Indian commissioner goes around. He's shopping around this new treaty. Uh, key elements of it include we're going to cede the Black Hills, we're going to cede hunting rights, and we're going to give the tribes uh, rations. Um, the rule in, in the 1868 treaty about um, the no-session rule that required three-quarters of the men of the tribe to agree, that gets completely ignored. And when the new treaty is finally signed by the tribe, you know, signed in quotes because it, it wasn't it wasn't a good faith dealing given that that whole provision had been ignored. A grand total of ten percent of the males of the tribe uh, agreed to sign. Thinking thinking nothing of it, Congress go, goes ahead. They enact the agreement in 1877. It's kind of like one of those. Well, you've got to. We've got to pass the bill before we can tell you what's in it. We're not, we're not paying attention to that. Um, so Congress goes ahead with the 1877 enactment. We're not going to observe that non-session clause in the 1868 treaty. And the passage ultimately legitimizes uh, the non-Indian settlers' invasion of the Black Hills. So that's the history. But what we're actually looking at in this specific case is whether, again, it's the Court of Indian Claims, whether they applied the appropriate rule in determining that Congress had not made a good faith effort to give the Sioux the full value of the Black Hills. So now we're, we're not really talking so much about Congress's plenary power. You know, we've, we've settled in, in previous cases that Congress has paramount power over Indian affairs albeit now that's a hotly contested issue with, with some Indian law scholars and, and attorneys and advocates. 
suggesting quite the opposite, that that, in fact, isn't the case. Nevertheless, as, as the law stands, that's the assumption. And so what we're trying to figure out in this case is whether when the Court of Claims considers the Sioux's claim for the Black Hills, um, whether they got the rule wrong um, in determining that actually Congress hadn't made a good faith effort uh, to, to compensate the Sioux for the, for the Black Hills. And we look first at the Fort Berthold test. And out of this case in Fort Berthold, um, we get a very interesting rule that becomes policy that Congress cannot act simultaneously as both the trustee acting for the benefit of the Indians and in exercising its plenary power over Indians and their property as they think in their best interest, in addition to exercising the power of, of sovereign power of eminent domain. So in other words, Congress can't both say, hey, we're the, we're the trustee, we're acting on behalf of our ward, we're acting for their best interest and exercising our plenary power because this is what's best for the Indians. And also say, hey, we're sovereign, so we're going to go ahead and effect the taking of the Indians' property, and that's okay. The court says Congress can own two hats, uh, but it cannot wear both at the same time. So the, the crux of the rule is that when Congress makes a good faith effort to give Indians the full value of the land, it is thus merely transmuting the property from land to money, and there's no taking. This is a mere substitution or change of assets, the, the substitution of assets or change of form, and that's the traditional function of a trustee. So uh, the, the question boils down to, did Congress uh, make a good faith effort to give Indians the full value of their land? Um, if they did, then what they're doing is they're simply transmuting the property. We're saying, hey, there was land, that there was X value for the Black Hills, and we've given you money in exchange. If, if that's in fact what they've done under the Fort Berthold test that the court cites, then Congress's action is perfectly lawful and we can, we can carry on. So the way that rule gets applied here uh, in USV Sioux Nation, we uh, apply the Fort Berthold test that harkens back to Lone Wolf v. Hitchcock, which you know, Indian law students and scholars won't, um, <laughs> won't uh, be unfamiliar with. And that's the idea that Congress has plenary power, paramount power, over the property of Indians uh, through the exercise of its guardianship over their interest. The Shoshone argument um, that we just looked at in the previous case is the idea that spoilation isn't isn't management. Just because you have power, um, federal government, that doesn't enable you to give tribal lands to others or appropriate them for your own purposes. If you're going to appropriate them for your own purposes or give them to others, you can do that, but you have to pay just compensation. So we're, we're taking these two cases that, that we've previously looked at in, in other, other places and they're combining them into this, this test, the Fort, uh, Fort Berthold test. 
And the gov- the conclusion is, well, the, the government argument, rather, is that the Court of Claims erred in concluding that the 1877 agreement was a taking based upon congressional failure to give adequate consideration. And that takings cases, they require recognition by courts of Congress as power to control and manage lands, um, but also that that power is not absolute. So to determine whether Congress actually made a good faith effort to give Indians the full value of the lands and pay, pay just compensation, we've got to look at the objective facts of the act. You know, what did the legislation actually say? We can look at committee reports. You know, what was the sense of Congress at, coming out of its committees at the time that the legislation or the or the 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 uh, treaty was ratified by Congress? What were what were Congress's own statements? Is there any evidence coming out of the special commissions that that were on point? And is there any sort of similar evidence? And on the the main topic of consideration, the only consideration that we get in this historic timeline or, or series of misadventures, if you will, the only item of consideration that we can even point to is rations. If you look at the historical record, the committees and legislators, they never indicate a belief that the rations were the fair or equivalent value of the Black Hills, and they almost certainly weren't. Uh, We can look at the lower court's conclusion in the Indian Claims Commission. The right to rations is not the equivalent value of land, but just an attempt to coerce the Indians into accepting the agreement. So in other words, the the policy of the goal was to get the session, to to get the Black Hills. There was never thought given that the rations were somehow payment for the Black Hills themselves. If you look at subsequent spending, on the part of Congress. We get $43 million spent at that time on rations, and that spending after the fact doesn't reflect uh, an anticipation of the obligation it was assuming to provide rations. So the rations themselves, in other words, they weren't tied to the sale in any way. <laughs> this was just their, their anticipated spending on rations in, in general. Um, so the question is, you know, was there some kind of quid, quid pro quo? And to the court, the, the undertaking on the part of Congress of an obligation to provide rations was a quid pro quo in exchange for depriving them of their chosen way of life. So in other words, you come onto the reservation, we'll give you rations. You give up your old ways, come onto the res, and here's your rations so you can live and get by. That's a very different scenario than saying that the rations are intended to compensate you uh, for the full value of the Black Hills themselves. The court concludes then that the 1877 Act, it wasn't just changing the form of the investment in Indian tribal property. It wasn't just a a transmutation, substituting land in exchange for money. What it was was an actual taking of the Sioux lands, and the court concludes that just compensations do. So to be clear, the Sioux win this case. They, they win the case arguing that they were not given um, the full value of, for the Black Hills themselves. And ultimately, we'll get to this in a sec, but that wasn't what they wanted in the first place. They didn't want simple monetary damages or, or a monetary uh, award. 
Um, the dissent written by Justice Rehnquist uh, is very interesting, and he comes at it from an entirely different perspective. And his argument is, you know, we, we shouldn't have heard this case at all. Congress cannot constitutionally require that the Court of Claims um, open up what was settled in 1942. So back when the Court of Claims you know, first gets off the ground, that Congress had not unconstitutionally taken the Black Hills in 1877. To Rehnquist, even if you hear the merits of the argument, um, what the majority's done, Justice Blackman's done, is, is engaged in a bit of revisionist history. And a, a famous quote in Indian law where he, he notes, Justice Rehnquist notes, the Indians did not lack their share of villainy either. It seems quite unfair to judge by the light of revisionist historians or the mores of another era, actions that were taken under pressure of time more than a century ago. Continuing on, there was a tragedy, deception, barbarity, and virtually every vice known to man. But in a court opinion as a historical and not a legal matter, both settler and Indian are entitled to the benefit of the biblical adjuration, judge not that ye be not judged. So Rehnquist's conclusion of the matter is that, you know, A, we shouldn't have heard this case in the first place. We're, we're opening up something that should have been settled back in 1942. And B, what we've done is we've engaged in revisionist history, that the Indians were just as culpable in the Indian Wars, as they called it, um, as, as non-Indians, that there was this tragedy, barbarity, um, deception, Etc. But we're not in a position to make those kind of judgments using modern day morals or, or principles and apply it to those times back then. And it's a very curious thing for a, a justice of the Supreme Court to say. I mean, you wonder if, if we applied that same logic and thinking to the topic of slavery, you know, would, would Rehnquist's, Rehnquist's uh, perspective have been, have been similar? Um, there was there was certainly plenty of of moral gray area in that that whole topic, and that's not to give you know too much credence to the notion that you know we we shouldn't judge. I mean, in many respects, that's the whole point of law. Um, but it is curious if you think about other you know, historical wrongs or questions. You know, what would what would the justice have said of those? Another another issue is the the U.S. Japanese internment camps in, in Korematsu. Um, so uh, you can you can see Rehnquist's perspective and the lens that he looks at looked at Indian law cases that these were kind of historic artifacts rooted in time and it wasn't for courts now to take our our modern sensibilities and go back and and rewrite history and in his view certainly uh, giving just compensation for the Black Hills amounted to that type of exercise. At, at the end of the day, so the, I mean, again, for for all of Rehnquist's uh, infamous dissent notwithstanding, the the suit win this case, and the court concludes that this was in fact a taking, and that they in fact were owed um, just just compensation. Afterward, the Sioux reject the payments that were ordered by the court because to them, acceptance of money is tantamount to agreement that the land was lawfully taken. And that's not something that the Sioux have ever recognized. And, and now, uh, and this is a, 
a bit a bit cold on the wires now. But in t- in 2011, uh, the original sum payment ordered by the court was 122 million plus interest. That number by 2011 had grown to over a billion dollars, and that that figure itself is 10 years old today. So it presents a real problem for the suit, given a number of um, uh, a number of social uh, issues and challenges within their communities, but also just the fact that there's there's a lot of money in the offing, but that's not what what they want. They they want their sacred lands back, and what it does is it highlights a, a bit of the inequity in in the justice system itself. Well, money may be fine in, in most contexts for, um, for takings issues, but in this case, what, what the tribe wants, what, the, what this indigenous nation wants, isn't money. It wants its sacred place back. So there's, there's obviously a bit of a disconnect that this case highlights um, and in many ways, this, this disconnect hasn't actually been, uh, been resolved. So, again, very, very interesting case um, coming out of uh, U.S. v. Sioux Nation uh, circa 1980. The last couple of cases uh, for today ought to go fairly quickly because they have a very uh, specific set of facts that I think we uh, would do ourselves well to uh, walk through. But, uh, the, again, they're, they're pretty particular uh, in in substance. Um, so starting first with the uh, Sioux Tribe of Indians v. U.S. from 1942. Again, going back to those some of those early early claims commission cases, but uh, this one in particular looking at uh, the problem of uh, executive set-aside lands and, and their compensability. We, get, we begin as we always begin with the treaty in 1868, so the Great Treaty of Fort Laramie, uh, that establishes the reservation. In 1874, the government decides they're going to implement a liquor trafficking um, ordinance on the reservation. And they notice a, a heavy uptick um, coming through the eastern boundary. So in 1875, on the eastern bank of the Missouri River, um, that land that was set aside gets removed from the public domain. And the purpose of it is to act as a buffer for the reservation. And the goal, again, is to curb liquor trafficking onto the reservation. So from 1875-1876, there are, are about three more parcels that get removed for the same reason. Um, the idea is that it was not supposed to be the withdrawal as a, as a matter of permanence but rather just to create this buffer zone to make sure that, that booze isn't getting onto the res. Uh, three years later, in, in 1879, the buffer zone uh, uh, had all but eliminated the threat of liquor trade on the res, according to the Commission of Indian Affairs. And so in August of that year, uh, the lands get put back into the public domain. And the very specific issue in the case is whether these executive orders of 1875 and 1876 conveyed to the tribes the same interest in lands um, as it acquired in lands covered under the Fort Laramie Treaty, and whether restoring those lands to the public domain was in fact actually a taking um, for which the tribe was entitled to compensation. 
So again, uh, we're we're it's it's a very peculiar case, but you know we're talking about these these very specific tracks and whether those are takings. So the rule is we look to Congress and their their plenary power, and the Constitution of the United States places the authority to dispose of public lands exclusively in the Congress. The executive power to convey any interest in these lands has to be traced to a type of delegation of its congressional authority. Now, for, for non-lawyers, that's, that's a bit of garbledygook, but in essence, the Constitution you know, vests each of the different branches with certain powers, duties, obligations, responsibilities. And here, the argument is that it's the executive power that's in question. And if, if the executive power is going to take any kind of action, it has to be traced, it has to be linked up with some sort of delegation of authority and responsibility on the part of Congress. And the answer to whether a delegation of, of congressional power has occurred um, that would convey a compensable interest in the lands, you've got to find it in the evidence of what consequences were thought by Congress and the executive, in this case, in the flow of the establishment of executive order reservations, so these these parcels that were covered under the federal set-aside. So, the, again, the, not to be too obtuse, but the rule is, you know, we've got to look at, you know, did the executive take action on the basis of some kind of delegation of congressional authority? If it, if it did, then then we can then we can find a a compensable interest uh, to the land in the lands to the Indians, and if the executive power just took took action and there's no trace to congressional authority, well, then that's a, that's a completely different ballgame entirely. So as as the court looks at it, um, to to them it's noteworthy that the executive branch or the executive department in this case consistently indicated that the rights and interests in which the Indians enjoyed of this land via executive order were very different from and less than their rights and interests in treaty lands or statutory reservations. Um, if you look for the magic words, it, again, in some cases indicate reservation diminishment. In this case, uh, would indicate um, you know some sort of... Uh, uh, actual meaningful interest in the land, some sort of compensable interest. Uh, the key words are there's no assurance for their occupation beyond the pleasure of the executive. The Indians become mere tenants at will, and they possess no permanent rights to the lands upon which they are temporarily permitted to remain. So as a result, the government did not pay compensation to the Indians. Um, and as a result, of, of that statement, the Indians were not entitled to compensation. So the conclusion is very straightforward. It's you know the Congress or the Supreme Court says we conclude there was no express or constitutional or statutory authorization for the conveyance of any compensable interest uh, to the Indians by these four executive orders. There was no implied congressional delegation of power, uh, and that can be found in evidence of the congressional and executive understanding. So in other words, you can look at the documents, you can look at the language, you can look at the congressional record, the understanding of the Indian agents. Um, this was all intended to be a temporary thing. 
And so when we're looking at executive orders, those are simply an exercise, um, and in this case, the exercise of a power of termination. Um, and as a result, payment wasn't required. So these parcels that get added on to create this buffer zone to halt liquor trafficking, in other words, it was for a very specific purpose. And that purpose was to staunch the flow of booze onto the res. And once that purpose had been accomplished, it was within the executive's power or prerogative to take those lands back out of um, the reservation to terminate uh, the executive orders. And the Supreme Court saying, you know, there's, there's a difference. When Congress creates a reservation by statute, it, it creates this sort of beneficial ownership. It creates the, uh, the meaningful, um, uh, uh, I was going to say appropriation, but it, it creates the meaningful nexus between land and ownership and constituent elements of land that we've looked at in the other cases. Here, all the executive did was create a buffer. And so we create this buffer for a specific purpose. It accomplishes its purpose, and the buffer goes away. The executive takes back those lands. So to the court, this is, this is not an exercise of power of termination that has any sort of compensable um, interest. There's no compensation uh, re required. And that leads us to the last case. Uh, it's U.S. v. Montana, again, case in 1981. Um, this is a famous case uh, for a number of reasons that we'll get to later uh, in this podcast, in the course. Um, but right now we're looking at a very narrow issue of the case, and that's, you know, what rights do Indians have to submerge lands or lands um, beneath the rivers and lakes within their territories? And so we start, as we always do, with the treaty. Uh, the first is 1851. That treaty creates the 38.5 million acre res. It includes hunting and fishing rights. <clears throat> in 1868, we get the big treaty, the Treaty of Fort Laramie, and that creates an 8 million acre reservation uh, that is held for the exclusive use uh, for the tribe. Uh, the reservation will get further reduced over time. And the, the thing of note is that the Bighorn River flows through the reservation. So in this case, the tribe is asking for recognition of title to the riverbed for the part of the Bighorn River that flows through the reservation. So this is a, this is a really interesting tactic um, on the part of the tribe. I mean, you've got uh, cl claims for lands in general, and you know, we're pretty familiar with those, but you know what we're talking about here is whether the tribes own the lands underneath the bodies of water. And that's something we haven't looked at um, before. So here we've got the issue. I mean, it's just it's straightforward, but you know, whether the United States conveyed beneficial ownership of the riverbed, in this case to the Crow tribe, uh, by its treaties of 1851 and 1868, and therefore continues to hold that land in trust for the use and benefit of the tribe. And in opposite, or on the other hand, it, it, whether the United States actually retained ownership of the riverbed as public lands, and then that interest in the riverbed as public lands, whether that gets passed on to the, the state of Montana upon its admission to the Union. And here we've got a number of, of things to kind of unpack and look at, but 
Um, there are just, just a couple that we'll focus on. So the, the rule that the court uses to decide the outcome of the case is that in deciding a question of title to the, the riverbed of a navigable um, waterway, um, we begin with a strong presumption against conveyance by the United States. And we must not infer such a conveyance, uh, you know, but for a couple of exceptions. The first is that there's a, a clear declared intent. <laughs> the intention was definitively declared or otherwise made plain or was rendered in clear and especial words, or unless the claim uh, confirmed in terms embraces the land under the waters of the stream. So in other words, yeah, okay, Congress can do that. You can, you can, um, you can certainly uh, convey land to the, to the tribes. But when we're talking about waterways that are navigable, as the case in the Bighorn River is, it's got to be pretty damn clear. Um, it's got to be made plain. You know, there could be special words that get used. Um, but we're going to implement a presumption that that's not the case. So if you're trying to overcome the presumption, it's, it's going to take a bit of work on the part of um, the the. I, I suppose, plaintiff in this case, to, to prove their claim. Moreover, we have the equal footing doctrine that comes into play. And th and this is a bit of, of legal arcana that most people don't think about. But again, in Indian law cases, it tends to come up. And the equal footing doctrine is just that the U.S. holds submerged lands for states. And the goal is to allow each state um, to enter the union on equal footing to all the others. And we have the presupposition that, that beds of navigable waters remain in trust for future states. And in this case, Montana, it, they pass to the new states when they assume sovereignty. And the application here is U.S. v. Holt State Bank, where the Red Lake Chippewa, Minnesota, they're seeking control over the bed of a navigable lake, Red Lake. That lake is even more compelling because the lake itself is wholly within the boundaries of the reservation. And there are treaties that on point that have established the res. And the language in that case that was very clear and compelling was that it's separate, apart, without use from sale for the use of the Chippewas. But there was nothing in those treaties that approached a grant of rights to lands underlying navigable waters. In other words, in, in the Chippewa case in Red Lake, or U.S. v. Holt State Bank is the case, but involving the Chippewas, that treaty didn't have anything that, that got close to a grant of rights to these underlying lands uh, under these navigable waters. And the court says, okay, that's, that's our major case on point. Let's, let's evaluate it under the facts of this circumstance. The Crow treaties here are just like the Chippewa treaties in Holt State Bank. There's no formal conveyance. They're silent on the ownership of the riverbed. In fact, there's no specific reference to the riverbed at all. And so the conclusion of the court is that the mere fact, direct from the case, the mere fact that the bed of a navigable water lies within the boundaries described in the treaty does not make the riverbed part of the conveyed land, especially when there is no express reference to the riverbed that might overcome the presumption against its conveyance. So again, we have a strong presumption that, that starts out and we have the equal footing doctrine that comes into play where the U.S. wants other states to come into the union on equal footing to the others. 
those two conspire against the tribe uh, and the presumption is maintained. So in this case, there, there is no, there is no um, conveyance. There's no beneficial ownership of the riverbed uh, that was conveyed to the Crow tribe by the treaties either of 1851 or 1868. There was simply no reference uh, to conveyance to those lands or those submerged lands. Um, it, interesting outcome, but uh, I don't think altogether too surprising given the way the court uh, framed the issue and the rules that it cited for for that decision. Note, you know, we don't get into any conversation about the canons of construction. Um, uh, you know, why? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> Probably speaks a bit to their selective application, but in this in this case, um, I think what we learn is just that riverbeds. When we're talking about navigable waterways, and we saw that in the Holt Bank case, um, and we certainly see it here on this issue in, in Montana. But um, there's a strong presumption against such conveyances. And uh, I'll I'll say this: I think we'll get to this maybe in the next uh, episode. But there are certainly examples where that. Um, is actually not the case where there is very clear language of, of conveyance. Um, and even then, it's, it's a bit difficult for tribes to assert those types of claims. And so with that, we will, we will pause and, and end it here. Um, I, I think these cases are really interesting because, you know, <laughs> the, the rationale that the courts apply, the way that these are, uh, issues are decided, the rules, the, the history, all of them come to bear when we're deciding, you know, what what Aboriginal title includes. Um, I think from from the Shoshone case, we get a very clear picture that uh, treaty interpretation matters, purpose matters. Uh, from the Sioux Nation case, um, and you know, we think about the application of the Fort Berthold test, but but really, you know, it gets at you know what was Congress actually doing. Was it simply changing the form of investment from Indian property lands to money, um, or did they do something else that that was that amounted to a taking using their powers of eminent domain, which is ultimately what the court concludes that this wasn't just a, a change in the form of investment, but it, it affected a taking. And then finally, you know, the the whole problem in in Sioux Tribe of Indians case with this sort of buffer zone. Um, it really highlights some of the tensions between, I think, Congress and the executive, where the you know executive giveth and can take it the way, but Congress, you know, their power to do that is is paramount with respect to Indian issues, and so there's there's certainly plenty to to think about in that regard as well. Um, so we'll we'll leave it here. Lots to lots to cover in the weeks to follow. Hope this uh, episode's been of interest. And, uh, you know, wherever you are, hope you take care and uh, come back and join us uh, in the next episode, hopefully uh, much sooner than, than a week. Talk to you soon. Bye.